Creeds and confessions are the banner of the church militant. They contain statements of doctrine that are to be believed for knowledge unto godliness and are to be confessed for the ministry of the church unto the world. In this way, creeds and confessions are for each member of Christ's body and for the body as a whole. In this podcast, I chat with Dr. Peter Lilback about a project that he has been working on for close to 50 years. Reformed Standards of Unity is a new volume that carries Christians down ancient paths so that they might walk in today's world with a living and confident faith. A church living in accord with these standards of faith is essential in today's world. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This we believe, from the prophets of old to the apostles in the new, the Bible is a book of creeds. These biblical statements are the foundation of Christian belief, which has been summarized in the great creeds and confessions of the church. Through these ancient and faithful statements, we stand on the shoulders of giants who give us a panoramic view of the teaching of God. I asked Peter how this new collection of creeds and confessions benefits the church. When we read the Bible, we actually find examples of simple creeds that were used in the Old Testament and the New. Perhaps we remember, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's an ancient creed of monotheism. Uh, when we come to uh, different sections in the New Testament, we can hear creedal statements and hymns, such as Jesus Christ is Lord. That simple statement is a belief that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, of course, as the church began to go forth, controversy was inevitable because we're in a fallen world and people began, like Jesus taught us, there will be uh, wolves in sheep clothing that will seek to devour the flock. There will be false teachers that will rise, just as there are false prophets in Israel. And so sooner or later, the church always is going to have to address error and heresy and sometimes overt rejection of biblical truth. And how do you lead people together to address that? Well, it's through a common statement of faith. And so as we look at the, what are the great statements of faith in Reformed Standards of Unity, we're actually looking at occasions where controversy was arising in the church and how the leaders of the church sought to give biblical answers in a simple way to guide the church in controversy. So we need creeds. In fact, we could easily say, if you say, I have no creed but the Bible, we'll put four or five people that have that statement together in the room, and guess what? They will disagree looking at the same Bible because the Bible can be interpreted well or poorly. Let us never forget, Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus when he tempted him, and Jesus had to give the true interpretation. 
And so I think one of the things that really is a great gift for us in the Reformed tradition is to have these classic debates of the past that were answered with clear biblical truth and then summarized, passed on from generation to generation. And so now in this wonderful work, Reformed Standards of Unity, we have creeds, catechisms, and confessions all at our fingertips so that we can go back and say, well, what really is justification? Who is God? How do I express the Trinity biblically? What does that commandment mean in the Ten Commandments? It's all there. And we believe that even though this generation has turned its back on the Bible and on Christianity, the questions that they're raising are all answered in the Scripture, whether it's gender, race relationship, issues of the rich and the poor, how should the church and the state conduct itself? Those treasures are all in the Bible, and they're wonderfully summarized in these creeds, catechisms, and confessions of our faith. We're really blessed to have them. Our forefathers in the faith have given us rich, doctrinal, and catechetical statements. As a faithful exposition of biblical doctrine, their voice is a voice for today, that we might find bridges for unity and boundaries for protection. As a portable book for godliness and piety, it offers much for personal and group study, as well as easy access to the great Christian tradition for the minister. I next asked Peter how this project came to be. The starting of Reformed Standards of Unity, believe it or not, goes back probably to about 1978. I was uh, raised in an independent tradition. Then I got into a dispensational seminary. And God's kindness, I discovered the Reformed faith. I stumbled on the Westminster Confession of Faith, of all places, in the Dallas Theological Seminary Library. And I opened up the very first chapter on the doctrine of Scripture. And when I read it, I literally began to weep. I had never read anything that was as succinct and biblical in power about the Word of God. And I'd studied at a Christian college, to a seminary. And the thought was, this is amazing. The second thought was, why have they kept this from me for so long? And I realized I was part of a tradition that had no creeds. And I stumbled on this Westminster Confession of Faith. And I said, I've got to read this thing. I started reading it, studying. I started outlining it. By the time I was done, I said, I've never met a Presbyterian in my life, but I'd like to be part of these people. And so I would, there I was, and eventually, and through a whole host of things, I discovered Westminster Seminary. I kind of knew about it, but I said, well, maybe they'll accept me for the doctoral program. When I came here, the only program they were offering was the PhD program in church history. I said, well, I guess I'll be a church historian, and that's my only option. I didn't know what I'd be, but I loved the theology of the Westminster Confession. I discovered it. But what was ringing in my ears with all of my history was, yeah, but you are moving away from the Bible to a man-made creed. And I thought, wait a second, that's not true. What these creeds have done have helped me to understand the Bible in a way I never thought I could. I said, somebody's got to bring these two together better. There, it seems to me there are some that only talk about their creeds and confessions and ignore the Bible. There's others that only talk about the Bible and ignore the confessions. And I said, I know what we need to do. We need to get a, some kind of a Bible that brings them together. So that began one of my hobbies. I started getting note cards 
I was going through the confession and listing all the references and trying to figure out by biblical order, where's it found in the confession? And my thought was maybe I could create a Reformation study Bible. Little did I know that that would become a reality many years later by Luther Whitlock and R.C. Sproul and others, but that was my hobby. I had tons of note cards, and I said, it's not just the Westminster Standards, but there are other confessions that are really important filled with scripture. And so I kept working on it, thinking someday I would do it. I wrote some letters to people and said, you know, what do you think? Don't you think we ought to have a Reformation study Bible? And well, it looked like no one would really take me up on it, but I kept working. And then lo and behold, I ended up becoming the president of Westminster Seminary. Today, that's over 18 years ago now. And I said, I actually have some manpower. Maybe I can get some people to help me in this project. So everybody who's ever sat at that desk of, in my office has had a little bit of homework to do on this project. Do you read this and put it in these note cards? And then my wonderful friend, Bernardo Bear, who's my co-person on this work, his diligence is extraordinary. He and I really have worked hard over the last few years to begin to assemble this so that we're going through all of the great creeds. And of course, by this time, lo and behold, when I started, computers didn't exist. Now we have computer technology. So the next step was, how do we take all of this and start creating a clear database where we can have them all together, all of these in different places. And by the time we finished all of that project, it was clear we didn't need a Reformation study Bible. It was already done. But we realized no one had ever done a Reformation or a Reformed database of all the confessions and their scriptural use all the way through. That database now exists. It's online. It's part of the database that you can use for Reformed Standards of Unity. And I thought, well, what, what do we do? And in the midst of all of this, in a throwaway comment, now I'm, I don't think Dr. Gaffin really knew even about my hobby because it was kind of personal. One day he said, I was at another seminary and they had this wonderful little book that had the Westminster Standards and the Reformed uh, Standards as well. So, you know, they, they call them the, uh, the, the Belgic Confession, the, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, the canons of the Synod of Dort, and they call them the Reformed Standards of Unity. We have the standards of our Westminster standards. And he said, they're one work. We need to have that. Couldn't we get it sometime? And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. I knew I was working. I didn't say anything to him about it. But I said, I'm going to get this job done. If Dr. Gaffin thinks it's that important that we get the Reformed and Presbyterian great standards together, we'll do it. So that really pushed me on until finally we got to the point that by then we had created a new publishing arm called the Westminster Seminary Press. I think we're in our 10th year or something like that now. It's amazing. And I remember saying, Bernard, we need to ask them if they're willing to print this book at some point. So we got the database. The confessions are there. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have, and Dr. Gaffin even said it'd be a great book to have available. So lo and behold, we worked together and then WSP decided they would put manpower on to really edit it well. And by God's grace, uh, maybe it's been 15 years ago already, one of the elders at the church I served in Bryn Mawr, George Sinclair, who'd been a trustee at Westminster, had given a lovely gift to celebrate one of the anniversaries of the Westminster Standards. And not all the money was spent. And he said, well, someday you'll need to use that on some confessional project. 
Lo and behold, that was about seven thousands of dollars that had been laying there for about 15 years. Just about the time when we needed to publish this book, which meant we now had the database, we had the encouragement, we had the work done, we had a printing press, and we had money to print it. I said, it looks like the Lord really wants this book not to be a, a Reformed study Bible, but the Reformed Standards of Unity. And so the idea of the name was to blend what our Reformed people called their tradition, which are the three forms of unity, and what we as Presbyterians call our Westminster Standards. So we blend the two and it becomes the Reformed Standards of Unity. So the book is now available and it's just a wonderful thing. I, I, like I go back, it's 30 or 40 years in the making as a small hobby. And I think it fulfills the desire that I had to say, when you love the Bible, you can really be blessed by the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms. But if you love the creeds, the confessions and the catechism, they drive you back to the Bible. It's a wonderful primary and subordinate standard for us, the Word of God given together in a very accessible teaching tool. And so I'm thrilled to see the book is now available. Praise God. Creeds and confessions are not mere man-made statements that move you away from the Bible. No, they bring you to the Bible. This is an important and much needed truth for the church today. With this need in view, Peter called a team together to create not only a special collection of creeds and confessions, but an online database that gathers together helpful scripture references in those important documents. I then asked Peter how the print book and online database can benefit up and coming ministry leaders and scholars. I would say, please keep this book near your study books. Don't put it on your shelf or you get to it after you're done with seminary. Keep it by your Bible, keep it by your Greek or Hebrew Testament and create the discipline to consult it. Timed it once a week, whatever. If you can't use it regularly, or you say, I'm studying this text. I wonder if it's in the confession or catechism. That's one thing. So learn to use it because it will, over the long haul, build your theological wisdom in a way that you'll be able to use to teach others. It's a wonderful transferable skill. Secondly, I think uh, the opening sections of our book, of Reformed Standards of Unity, have these classic creeds. And they are easily overlooked and forgotten in the process of the church's life because they're ancient, there's theological issues, they say they're hard to teach or we just do it for rote memory. But if you begin to make those yours as a young student, they will find a place of prominence in a proper way in your ministry. So your liturgy is deeply strengthened when you can say, today I would like us to consider the Nicene Creed. And if you've been reading it on a regular basis, it's not an alien thing you have to insert. It's, well, I guess we ought to talk about the Trinity. Let's put it in. But you've been meditating on it because it's a regular part of your piety and reflection. I think also the, the uh, use of the confession is something that I would hope, uh, whether it's in the, the Reformed or Presbyterian side, that when you're doing an exegetical paper at the seminary, or you're going to do a, a homiletical study, or you're going to consider a point in church history, that you might ask the question, is anything from this era represented in the creedal tradition? And if you especially get to know the second Helvetic Confession, 
it's picking up great debates out of the church history. And your church history, you can see, is connected with the confessional life of the church. That's a wonderful strengthening of your doctrinal and ecclesiastical life. And then finally, I would encourage a student as he becomes, let's say, a second year student, sit down with a younger student that's just come behind you and say, let's read the confession together. Just a chapter at a time or a paragraph at a time and talk about it. It becomes a mentoring discipleship tool, especially for young theologians with each other. And over time, it's my hope that the great treasure of Reformed theology that's in our standards, our confessions, will help them to become far better presbyters, far better teachers, because they have a command of theology and they also know how to find where a text is in the confession in the broader tradition, not just in their own. And lastly, um, I don't know if this will ever happen, but if I had a really good first year student who is clearly thinking someday I'm gonna do a THM or a PhD, I would say, has anyone ever done a study on the use of the Gospel of John in the Reformed creeds? Well, how would you do that? Well, go to the database and find out where it is. And then you now have a basis to think about, why did they appeal to this text and this one? Why did they not use it in this confession? It's parallel. What was driving them? And it's filled with all kind of, uh, let's say, suggestions of research that are yet to be done. When I see the database and I look at all that's there, I would say, if I had had that when I came as a student, that might have said, I'm gonna study that. So there's doctoral dissertations, THM theses, uh, historical church papers to be written all over through that database, and I hope someone will pick them up and do that. So those are some ideas. Peter has learned much from creeds and confessions and sees in these statements a historically rich doctrinally sound and ethically relevant guide for Christian understanding and living today. This is important, for with new times, there are new questions. As Christians with this creedal and confessional history, we have old and sure answers. I asked Peter to speak to how this new collection of creeds and confessions can withstand the test of time. Okay, well, there's several thoughts that come to mind in light of the wonderful question you've asked of how these things will, will have made a difference or have made a difference in my own life. Uh, number one, I would say, to answer from a scholarly level, is that it's very easy to think that the proof texts were designed to say this verse shows the truth of this point. But scholarship has shown that when the proof text is used, it's actually encouraging you go to the commentaries or the studies on that text because it's in the discussions around this text that you'll find some of the truth of what that confession is meaning. So I've learned over years there's a broader understanding of the proof text apparatus. Sometimes it hits it right on the head. You say, how did they get that out of that? Well, if you understand its purpose was to guide you to the theological library and say, go look at the commentaries on this, ch this chapter and verse and you're gonna find a discussion related to what's going on here. So that's, that's one new understanding that's developed because I've been in church history and realized that's a key, key understanding. Scholars are beginning to recognize how proof texts were used at that time. But our work also recognizes that churches have added proof texts through the years with the other understanding, saying, well, there's this other text that might actually prove this better. 
So our apparatus has both kinds, some that are suggesting, some that are saying, this is a great text, you need to exegete because it's going to give you the point. So it's kind of a both end. So that's one more of a mature approach. Uh, going back to my own pilgrimage theologically, I, when, when you come from a, uh, let's say, a non-confessional tradition, an evangelical tradition, an independent tradition overlaid with dispensational theology, you start reading the creeds and say, I've never heard any of this. How is it possible that people have actually believed this and put it in print? I've never even heard of it. And it, it helped me to realize that the stream that I was part of really was missing out on a much broader sphere of theological studies. And when you read the Reformed Confessions, you realize they're engaging the Catholic tradition, they're engaging the Lutheran tradition, they're engaging the Anglican tradition, the Orthodox tradition, heresies. In other words, as you begin to read the creeds, you are becoming a church historian. You're, whether you agree or not, or the critique is right, you're saying, wow, there's another whole tradition that's wrestled with this, I need to learn about it. So I think uh, knowing the creeds, it helps you not only to learn the Bible, but also to learn church history. So it's a marvelous tool for church history. I think a third thing is that it has helped me preaching that there are times when you are preaching a text or an emphasis and you say, I need to give a doctrinal answer here. What a wonderful thing to say. I'll never get better than quoting the Westminster Confession right here or the Catechism. And you have a succinct, biblical, scholarly, universally recognized statement of truth. That is really a help when you're preaching. So you come to a great doctrine. We're talking about predestination. What in the world do I say? Say, brothers and sisters, for centuries, our tradition has described it with these words. Hear them again. What a help that is. Because you got to wrestle with these things every generation, but you don't have to reinvent the best way to say it. That's always a handy tool. And then I guess the, the last thing that I would say, as a pastor, <clears throat> when I'm counseling somebody, every pastor who's been at Westminster tries to think, am I doing some kind of biblical counseling or is this man's wisdom is from God's word? I have found it to be really amazing when I'm struggling with a question of ethics or practice to step back and look at, of all places, the larger catechism and its exposition of the Ten Commandments. You say, hmm, the issue they're wrestling with, I think, has to do with authority. Now, authority, isn't that, oh, that's the fifth commandment. I better go back and look at the fifth commandment. And I start reading it and say, wow, that statement is exactly what they're dealing with. And there's actually a passage of scripture that I can meditate on to guide them. It is an unsung hero of wisdom for pastoral counseling to go back to our great catechetical tradition with all of its biblical insight for practice that this is what your duty, this is your sin, this is the promise, this is the warning. My goodness, that's, and it's filled with the timeless wisdom of God and the ages all there for you to use. And I think that really is tremendously helpful. Also, not just in counseling, but also in presbytery type issues. Sometimes you ask, you gotta untie a, a Gordian knot. You know, how do you, if you can find where does it fit in the system, you would go and say, okay, I've got a, a structure by which I can unpack a huge issue. And boy, that helps. So in other words, we are not working harder, we're working smarter.
We've had godly wisdom before us. We're tapping into it, now applying our circumstances and wrestling, and it's a tremendous gift. So when I teach ethics, one of the things I do is to say, okay, solve the problem uh, in light of your best judgment, and then look at it. What are the biblical references, context that address it? What do we know from our ethical training? What do we know from church history? But where in the confession, catechisms, and creeds? Has this been dealt with in some way, and how does that help shape it? So there are multiple aspects by which we can come to address difficulties that I think gives the church a lot of wisdom and help. So how has it helped me? It's made me remember I should always go back to the confessions and creeds whenever I'm dealing with an issue. When I'm preaching a text, remember to consult the confession catechisms. And when I'm uh, trying to get someone to uh, think about a church history issue, if I can say what we're gonna talk about in church history, did you know our confession actually talks about this is the solution they got to. Now, how did they get there? And that's so there's tremendous value. The great confessions and creeds of the Christian tradition have come to us by corporate effort. These pathways trodden by our forefathers in the faith are the same pathways that can help us faithfully walk into the future. As we have heard, this is a precious biblical truth. Consider purchasing a copy of Reformed Standards of Unity so that you might grow in knowledge and in piety, and future generations might look back to see the glow of your candle of faith. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Peter Lilback. This podcast is a production of Westminster Seminary Press and Westminster Media. It was made possible by the generous support of our ministry partners. To learn more about how your gift can sustain Westminster's gospel mission, please visit us online at wts.edu slash support. This podcast was hosted by Nathan Noki. The episode was produced by Jimmy Adkins and Josh Curry. Thank you for listening.